Well, good evening, and welcome to this extraordinary program that we have for you tonight. I'm Stephen Kroll. I'm the chairman of the, Pel of the Penn Children's Book Authors Committee, and it is my job simply to welcome you and to introduce our moderator, Elizabeth Levy. Since I seem to know most of you who are here, this would appear to be a thankless task since all of you know Liz too and probably everyone else on this platform. Um, but I will say something, which is that uh, Liz, in addition to being a good friend, is also a most versatile and distinctive writer. Uh, she is the author of, of books uh, from picture books through uh, young adult novels. And as she says herself, uh, the books are really best known for humor and friendships. Uh, among her more well-known works are Dracula is a Pain in the Neck, one of my <laughs> favorites, uh, The Computer That Said Steal Me, uh, Lizzie Lies a Lot, uh, The Something Queer Picture Book Mystery Series, and a very popular series for 8 to 12-year-olds called The Gymnasts. Um, we have quite an evening planned. As I've said, I'm glad you're all here on this night after the Thanksgiving weekend. And may I give you Liz and the rest of us. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> it's hard to say yourself you're known for humor and friendship, so I won't say it. Samuel, Gold Samuel Goldwyn was famous <coughs> for his remark, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. Yet children's book writers have long been held to the fire of family values and held responsible for the values that readers find in our books. In fact, with whole language, children's books are being examined for the morality more than ever, and we're expected to teach everything from race and gender to sexuality to math and science. Tonight, we are honored to have with us six authors whose books I consider are all far outside the comfort zone. And I mean by that, these are not books that you, as easy and fun as they are to read, that anyone says can settle in and feel very comfortable with. We're not looking to answer the chicken and the egg question, which came first, the creative impulse or the values, but rather to explore whether creativity is ever in conflict with the values that you're writing about, and can you separate the creative impulse from the values of the author and the values that children find and adults look for in our books. A brief note about the format. Uh, each of the authors will speak for five minutes, and people can get up and shout if they go longer. Um, and after they each speak, we will, uh, each of the authors will, we will have a discussion. They will question each other, and then we'll throw the questions open to the audience. Our first speaker is Pam Con Conrad. To many people's surprise, Pam Conrad, the author of Prairie Songs and My Daniel, was born in New York City and lives and teaches here. here. Among her many awards, I'm most envious of the Cowboy Hall of Fame Western Heritage Award. <laughs> Pam Conrad constantly explores new forms of fiction and new age groups, totally confusing anyone who would try to classify her as either a Western writer, a mystery writer, a novelist, or a picture book writer. Whatever age she writes for, she writes with deeply felt emotion and power. Pam. Thank you. Uh, I could 
can't speak for an hour without notes, but to speak for five minutes is really hard. So I, I wrote this little thing that'll take a few minutes and just. I have never intentionally set out to teach anyone anything with my books. Writing is a purely selfish experience for me, a spiritual experience. I have even been told that I have the reputation of being the Shirley MacLaine of children's books and writing workshops. <laughs> this combined with my inability or unwillingness to keep up with what's PC, politically correct, has created some interesting dilemmas for me. Some of my books come to mind. My second book the fir and first novel was Prairie Songs, and a few reviewers were upset with the way I had portrayed the Indians that appeared in a couple of the chapters. And yet Prairie Songs was told from the point of view of a 12-year-old 19th century prairie girl. All her descriptions were gathered from the tons of journals I had read, descriptions of what Indians would have worn and how they would have acted and interacted with the settlers. For the main characters in my book to have called these characters Native Americans would have been ludicrous. I felt my job as the writer was to listen to the voice of my 18th century character and not to interject my 20th or 21st century jargon. The next book, My Daniel, took place during the same period and there was a character in that book named Amber who was a freed slave and a mystic. The book had done very well and won a few awards, but what still sticks in my craw is the review that said the racist portrayal of Amber was inexcusable. With the help of some people at Harper, this review was challenged, and we were told it was racist because I had compared Amber to an animal. And indeed, Julia, my main character, had. Julia, the main character in narrative voice, a 14-year-old native Nebraskan in the late 1800s, had never seen a black person before. And when she sees Amber for the first time, she says, the woman was very dark, as dark and as shiny as a horse. When I looked up the exact words to quote here, I noticed that in the previous paragraph, my main character had compared three white characters to an Appaloosa, an antelope, and a snake. Figure <laughs> that out, if you will. These reviewers also objected to the fact that Amber could smell dinosaur bones. This, to me, was not racist. It was mystical. And in fact, my model for Amber was my own white mother. Then there's a picture book manuscript that I wrote that will be published in 1994. It's about a rooster who thinks he makes the sun come up, and his realization of his limitation involves a kind of, uh, involves a kind and adoring chicken who lives in the same barnyard. I read this story aloud somewhere, and afterwards someone told me gently that the story was incredibly sexist. Sexist? How could it have been sexist when the rooster's struggle was my own? I was the rooster. As a writer, I'm reluctant to worry about being politically correct, and as elusive as an elusive state that seems to change as frequently as the pronunciation of some countries. When I wrote Pedro's Journal, a book about Columbus's first voyage to America, I knew the material could be super sensitive and potentially explosive, and yet I made every effort to resist political correctness, to resist imposing my morals on this tale. I simply listened intently for the voice of a 15th century boy off on the adventure of his life, just this and nothing more. Of course, my books are filtered through my own life and through my mind, so I try to lead a conscious and sensitive life, my only moral arrow being truth. And it's my hope that my writing reflects this and that I have never written anything that would hurt anyone. Uh, our next speaker is Virginia Hamilton, who I promise not to call a national monument. <laughs> 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 But Virginia is certainly one of the most highly acclaimed writers of our time. In fact, 
Listing her awards is like reading Ted Williams' batting title. You have to keep repeating yourself. Most, <laughs> most recently, she received the 1992 International Hans Christian Andersen Award. For the aspiring authors out there, they should remember it took her 10 years to get her first book published. But from M.C. Higgins the Great and Zeely to her newest book, Dry Longzo, she does bring a musical language to her art. And within the music, there's humor and there's characters who never do exactly what we expect. Regina Hamilton. Uh, I don't think I've ever thought about my values in terms of my writing until I was asked to do so for this panel. Uh, values, I think, are inherent in a person, like blood and guts. I didn't publish anything until I was 33. I'm 39. So I suppose there is... <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there is some value in being pretty set in mind. <clears throat> My approach to creating books for ages 7 through 17 and sometimes 77 involves some childhood memories <clears throat> that are the catalyst for my creative process. That process of imagination is then woven into varied kinds of fictional fabric. The fabrication is my way of solving problems of experience and memory. It is how I retain the essence of my past, perhaps for future generations. My childhood was insular, rural, American, small Ohio village, familial, and culturally African-American. I've wanted to portray the essence of who I am, part of a parallel culture society in America. Parallel culture, rather than minority culture, for me, best describes the cultural diversity and equality of American ethnic communities. In terms of society, I value egalitarian ideals. Therefore, I believe in the equality of people, especially in political, economic, and social life. In education, I believe there is the assumption that children have the right to see themselves presented in terms that reflect who they are truly and not the way society may see them. To portray them in story with respect to their ethnicity, their history, and culture. My books reflect my concern with family and generations, with community and how children do or do not fit within community environments. I write, I hope, stories that entertain. And when I sit down to write, I don't propose deliberately to send a message. But what I write has a message, since it's impossible to write anything about my ethnic group that does not therefore become symbolic or specific to that group. That is simply the nature of the African-American experience in this society. We have always had to fight to express ourselves as individuals and to be seen as such. In other words, if I write some story with colloquial or regional speech, it will surely be said that Virginia Hamilton's characters speak in black English, whatever that is. The writing at once becomes politicized. The language used is no longer individual, but is generalized to an unspecific type with no distinguishing virtue. This was more deeply true in the past than presently. Presently, through a variety of books, I'm able to change somewhat this narrow perception. I don't know what black English is. I think it is a euphemism for non-standard English and thought by some somehow to be a negative dialect. 
I use regional speech of many kinds in my books. As far as I'm concerned, African Americans speak a variety of English, very creative, very sensitive. What I write is personal to me out of my personal identity in a geographical place in time and history in a family that has been familial and specific since the time the first family narrative was spoken with regard to the first story that a family member related as a free individual and not as a slave. I write free narrative related to that pastime of my family progenitor. Many of my books, both fiction and nonfiction, are concerned with the historical past, and I refer to these as liberation literature with respect to their slavery and fugitive origins. These books portray a people's suffering and courage and their growing awareness of self <clears throat> in the pursuit of freedom. Liberation literature documents the evidence either through biography, reconstructed factual narration, or folktale writing. The literature of liberation frees those past nameless tellers who in their folk tellings and autobiographical narratives kept the spirit of liberty through the dark centuries of slavery. And by writing this literature, I act as a witness, visualizing and perceiving the past as objective reality and documenting the evidence of others' suffering. My more modern books, usually the novels, are related to the present generations, children, parents, and grandparents, and have to do with 20th century concerns of living. I'm almost finished. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that no editor has ever tried or wanted to censor my work. No one has ever told me what I can or cannot write about. But I think that I am subject to a type of censorship that is insidious, and that is rarely considered in discussions on censorship on panels like this. Joanna Hurwitz will be our next speaker. And I think there's a lot that we will want to talk to about that, um, about what Virginia just said. Jo Joanna Hurwitz's books are so popular with children and so filled with everyday good humor that one forgets that the mind that can conceive of bombs in the shape of cantaloupes and using Colgate's when you start bleeding once a month is really on to something quite strange. In fact, like her autobiographical character in Once I Was a Plum Tree, who must come to terms with the fact that Jesus Christ was born Jewish and so was she, Joanna Hurwitz writes with a voice thick with emotion and chocolate. Joanna Hurwitz, <laughs> to your own words. <laughs> I write books for children aged 8 to 12, and it's my goal to entertain them. I want them to discover that reading is fun. It is very important to me that when children finish reading one of my books, that they will immediately go to the library and look for another book. It doesn't have to be my book. I want them to love reading as much as I do. That is my main goal as a writer. But I hope the experience of reading my book has convinced children that reading is just as much fun as movies or television or video games. Because I write for such a young audience and because I want to amuse them, I do not usually write about more serious subjects that you can find in books by some other authors. I don't write about poverty homelessness, suicide, child abuse, rape, homosexuality, AIDS, drugs, 
alcohol, crime. Instead, I write about lighter, but to a young reader, very important matters like friendship, moving to a new address, new teachers and a new school, class elections, birthday party politics, siblings, <laughs> lost teeth, chicken pox, new pets. It is true that I killed off a cat in my book, Hurricane Elaine, and in The Rabbi's Girls, the father dies. Dee Dee's parents get divorced and Dee Dee takes charge. But by and large, my books are filled with things that you can laugh at rather than worry over or cry about. If you are writing realistic contemporary fiction, you want your characters to speak like real people. And it's much easier to have an eight-year-old say, yikes, when he is surprised by an event than to put those words into the mouth of a 15-year-old. My characters do not curse, so I have never had to consider if anyone is going to object to my use of language. In Russell Sprouts, my six-year-old hero comes home from school with a bad word. He is told by his mother that she doesn't want him to use it. But of course he does. But that doesn't mean I needed to use it. Eventually, Russell makes up his own bad word, schmatz, to replace the one he heard at school. Only one person has ever complained about finding the word schmatz <laughs> in my book. And that was a librarian who contacted me to say it was her maiden name. <laughs> Cross my heart. <laughs> Still, I do find that from time to time, I must censor myself. I care deeply about my readers, and I don't want to teach them to do anything I wouldn't want my own children to do. Here is an example, an appropriate one for this time of year. In my book, Hooray for Alibaba Bernstein, nine years, six months, 23 days old, David Bernstein, who has renamed himself Alibaba, is walking down the street with a schoolmate. To their mutual amazement and delight, they recognize a man walking towards them. He is short, heavy set, with a thick head of white hair and a long white beard. There is no question in their mind that even though he isn't dressed in his distinctive fur-trimmed red suit, they are coming face to face with Santa Claus. And they do what any kid might do in that situation. They go up and begin mm -hmm. speaking to him. But here's the problem. Do I really want children to go up and speak to strangers? Aren't the streets of New York and every city and town in this country filled with lookalikes? people who look like sports figures or TV and movie stars, another Santa Claus. So I made the man promptly say to the two children, haven't your parents told you not to talk <laughs> to strangers? <laughs> of course, said Alibaba, but we wouldn't exactly call you a stranger. Just about every kid in the world knows who you are. The bearded man handles the situation by inviting the children to join him inside the local luncheonette. He hands them each a quarter and tells them to phone their parents and tell them where they are. Only then do they sit down at the well-lit counter and not in a dark booth and over <laughs> hot chocolate <laughs> converse. Alibaba has an important question to ask Santa Claus. 
Why doesn't he bring presents to Jewish children? So you see, I do handle some touchy issues after all. <laughs> the well-lit booth is <laughs> dangerous territory. John Cheska will be our next speaker. Some of you may have figured there's a way, method to how we're doing this. John Cheska has fostered the coddling of criminals by encouraging children to sympathize with the wolf. In his time travel adventures, normally a form beloved by teachers because it promotes interest in the past, his characters use erudite curses such as, and your mother's a sardine can. <laughs> and finally, in his latest book, The Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales, he urges children to confront the burning question of our time, who is this Isbin guy anyhow? <laughs> John. Gosh, thanks, Elizabeth. I think she blew it by giving away the title to the latest picture book there. I was going to say I was invited to speak on this panel because I'm the most sensitive one up here. And I really deal very carefully with the sensitive issues. But... Maybe the title, Stinky Cheese Man and Other Fairly Stupid Tales Alone, just sort of sends a shiver through some teachers' lives. But actually, um, I'm with Virginia in that I had never really thought about values um, being somewhere buried in the book or somehow thinking about values first and then writing the book. And I think part of that is because I came to writing kids' books in a kind of roundabout way. I um, got my bachelor's in chemistry, so I was perfectly <laughs> equipped for children's book writing. No, actually, I was perfectly equipped to then come out to Columbia and get my master's in fiction writing. Um, and once I got that, I was perfectly equipped to then paint apartments, <laughs> which is what I did. Um, so I had my master's in fiction writing, was painting apartments, thinking I would go into college teaching. Uh, but that kind of fell through, too, because college kids seemed a little weird and kind of dull. Um, but then I heard about this job that was available to be an assistant first grade teacher at a private school up on 90th Street. So I went there and watched these little guys in action and just got hooked on little kids as a, I don't know, just as little kids. Uh, and I ended up staying at that school and teaching for the next 10 years. And I think that's where I got my values from, uh, second graders. <laughs> Might also explain where I got my point of view from, too. Like, it wasn't my fault. I didn't do it. Um, I think I heard that a few times in the course of three years teaching second grade. And even then, it's, it kind of took me a while to still figure out that I should be writing kids' books. It suddenly dawned on me one day I'd been reading all kinds of stuff to them. Um, and there was my audience sitting right in front of me. And it just, I had been writing tortured short stories and novels and sending them off to uh, the New Yorker and the Atlantic and getting them back in about six months with a little rejection slip. Then I realized kids were probably an even better audience. I had a much better sort of connection with them than any adult crew that I could think of. So I took a year off and just wrote kids' books um, and then got rejections from children's book publishers every six months. <laughs> so it was kind of nice that way. Um, 
But both Lane Smith, the guy who did the pictures, he and I had a hard time selling the true story of the three little pigs at first. In a weird kind of censorship way, I think too many people thought it was too sophisticated for kids. And I think that's where a lot of adults underestimate kids in general, is what they can handle, um, what they're capable of thinking about, what they're capable of deciding on their own. And teaching with them for four or five years, I think I got a real good dose of respect for what they are capable of. And they taught me a lot of things. Um, probably the best of which being if you want to learn something, maybe break the rules first. Uh, and if you can break them in a funny way, then the kids really enjoyed it. My second graders were big fans of bad jokes and puns and just kind of weird behavior in general. <laughs> so I sort of enjoyed that as an audience. And I think that's eventually what blossomed into something like the fairly stupid tales. Those were some of the first fairy tales I had twisted and sent around. I never really gave a thought to about, you know, am I wrecking someone's sacred canon here? Though I had some, some qualms about that later. I wondered if I would get some letters back from people who respected the fine old fairy tales the way they really were, like when throats could get slit and people could burn in dancing shoes. <laughs> oh, sorry. I got carried away. That's when you go a little further back than Disney and read the Grimm's versions. But I only got one sort of bad letter or letter from a grandfather in Georgia who didn't like the three little pigs because he had never read a story where the pigs got eaten. I thought, jeez. I didn't know which versions he'd read, but all of my versions were much worse. In fact, and that was one issue where my editor and I talked and she wondered if maybe the wolf couldn't really eat the pigs. Maybe he could just put them in a bag and save them for later or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but both Lane and I thought that's kind of like premeditated murder. <laughs> it seemed much more spontaneous to eat them on the spot. See, these are the kind of issues we grappled with. Uh, that and stupid. Oddly enough, the word stupid is a curse word in some parts of the country. I think mostly in Ohio. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> because I, before The Stinky Cheese Man even became a book, I was reading the stories in manuscript, and Lane and I were just relentlessly saying, and these are fairly stupid tales because they're stupid, and there's something wrong with them. They're very stupid. Until finally, at the end of 40 minutes, one little third grader raised her hand, and she said, we don't say stupid. <laughs> this is, I wondered why the teachers were gritting their teeth like that. I thought maybe they just didn't like someone retelling sacred fairy tales. But the jury's still kind of out on the stinky cheese man. Um, we didn't censor ourselves at all, I guess, come to think of it. <laughs> well, we didn't get the pop-up that we wanted to put in the tortoise and the hare, H-A-I-R. Um, I think that was just a production decision, though. Uh, and we didn't get the scratch and sniff on the stinky cheese man. And our editor also thought we would be less than sincere if we left a space on the cover to place the medal here. <laughs> it was just going to be a wheel of cheese. So I, I think the only way I've ever really had to deal with censorship 
is from this strange sort of unspoken rule of a lot of children's books that they should be kind of soft and gentle. Um, but those are only that's only an impression that people have who don't know children's books. And if you've read the best children's books, you know they are subversive in the best sense. Um, and they just egg on that second grade urge to break rules and sort of burn things down, knock chairs over. Which is why I fit in perfectly with the uh, sort of knucklehead second, second grade boy crew. Which is kind of what I aimed my series, my time travel series at. Um, I found a lot of the girls in my class were great readers and would take off and they were reading Anne of Green Gables, which I still can't read. It's just too tough for me. <laughs> in the second grade and the boys were struggling through Frog and Toad and The Cat in the Hat and they were too embarrassed to pick up a book. So I decided I'd write some with short chapters and disgusting little bits in it, like Blob the Giant, whose major talent is he smells so bad he knocks down most of the knights. Um, he lifts his arm and knocks down a few more. Sneezes and knocks down a few more. And then gas warfare occurs, is the most delicate way I can put it. Um, and he knocks down a few more. That was another great editorial conference I had uh, <laughs> with my editor. She said, John, you can't have the fart. We have to take out the fart. Leave the sneeze, you can have the body odor, take out the fart. <laughs> and I said, but Roald Dahl, Roald Dahl does a lot of disgusting stuff. Can I be like the American Roald Dahl? She said, no, John, take out the fart. I said, but it doesn't say fart anywhere in it. I'll censor myself on this one. So I delicately kind of wrote around it, and we realized we had maybe reached the pinnacle of editor-author conferences here. <laughs> and called it a truce and left in the uh, gas warfare. <laughs> so I'm available for any questions. I don't think uh, <laughs> I've done anything wrong. <laughs> Next. Didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, not my fault. Right. <laughs> Vera Williams will be our next speaker. Uh, the prevalence of comfy furniture in Vera Williams's award-winning books, such as A Chair for My Mother and Music, Music for Everyone, might lead you to think that her books are, as we said, within that comfy zone or for relaxing with. But mixed in with her delightful drawings and stories is the powerful message that we all, rich and poor, black or white, deserve an overstuffed armchair, music, and particularly cherry trees where we live and in the city. So, Vera, thanks. Okay. Well, I have to say that uh, I have thought about values probably every minute since before I was born. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, not, you know, it's not my, my total activity, but the uh, values and uh, political points of view uh, were part of my upbringing. And uh, when I thought about this question, is there a conflict, I realized that though uh, I'm a person who is easily conflicted about many things, uh, this is something about which I do not experience a conflict in any deep way. Uh, to me, um, all that inner struggle that goes with creating something new and there's a great deal of that. Everybody knows who tries to make things of 
of different voices in different levels and um, generally noisy dialogue with self and sometimes with others uh, goes on when you're trying to produce something or trying to, not to produce something but to bring something forth. That same dialogue goes on uh, to me when you are dealing with and living with uh, a sense of, of your values uh, you, and you're trying to make them work in the real world and in your work. But uh, to me, all that uh, inner struggle, and as I say, sometimes outer since I'm very vocal about it, uh, is an essential part of creativity. It, it is creativity. And I don't experience a conflict between a part of myself that deals with values and a different part of myself that writes and paints and chooses type and decides what's on the back cover and the front cover and uh, the shape of books. All of that, to me, is part of the same process. Now, um, or the same living, I'd rather call it the same living. Uh, I, I think I don't experience that because I was very lucky uh, in my childhood in a way uh, in that uh, my parents were Marxists with an anarchist and bohemian tinge. Uh, and uh, they were unremitting about this, in this. <laughs> I grew up during the depression of the 30s and uh, was part of hard times. I was in no way protected from uh, the annoying worry about necessities or from frequent moving or from the terrible toll that took in many families of uh, equanimity or, uh, or soft voices or, uh, or um, a, a comfort in family life. My parents fought a lot and, um, and broke up and came together again. And uh, all of this, which of course, caused me a great deal of, of uh, pain and uh, unhappy memories, was mixed in, inextricably mixed in with me, as were the very happy parts of my life, uh, with my parents' beliefs and the beliefs of their friends, which was that life was about something. Life was about something. I remember a little poem. I'll tell you this little poem. The language is very archaic. And, and, and perhaps not even decipherable, but my father, my father gave me a book when I was a little child called Science and History for Boys and Girls. It was written by an Episcopal bishop who had been kicked out of the Episcopal church for his radicalism. And in the front of this dim little book was a picture of a, uh, a globe of the world and a, um, a black child and white child with their hand on the globe and a little poem that said, we are living, we are dwelling in a great and awful time. In an age on ages telling, to be living is sublime. Now I was quite small when I got this, I mean, you know, eight or nine, and that poem meant a great deal to me. I somehow took it to heart, I understood that or I made it my own, and all that our family struggled through, and all that I saw in my neighborhood, and all that my parents told me to came under this, and yet are working through it all, and my parents' ideas of how we should cope with it, and all were 
came to a certain sublimity. Uh, and uh, my parents believed and um, enabled me to have the privilege of doing, of in acting out their beliefs, that uh, we were all to be actors uh, on the stage of history, you know, the excluded and the poor and uh, everybody, that was the goal. And we were not only to get, have our share of economic goods, but our share of the greater goods of the world, according to them, which were poetry and art and uh, theater and music and the joy in nature and recreation in nature. They, they were very high-minded, very high-minded. <laughs> and uh, I, rather than um, uh, rebelling against this, uh, became uh, deeply, uh, deeply imbued with it. Now, um, it was not conveyed to me, and I think this is important, and this, this it kind of explains why, um, why my, what I feel is that my, my books come out of this. Is, it was not that this came to me in teachings, just in the uh, unrelenting machine gun voice of my father explaining history. It came to me in his thrilling bass voice in the warmth of his arms that we leaned against as he read us poetry, uh, in his long walks with us. It came to me through my mother's uh, outraged uh, descriptions of people uh, evicted on the street with their possessions and what they said and what she did and what the neighbors did and in the tears in her eyes. It also came to me in uh, a childhood um, a fury and longing that I had to share her with the whole world, right? Um, so, uh, though, those are complex, uh, complex uh, feelings, and they're the complexities from which stories come, and they're the part of my life from which stories come, and so that the values and uh, and the experiences were all bound in there together. I don't remember a childhood separate from politics and political values. It, uh, I don't remember that there was any conflict between such values that one might have developed in adolescence, say, and a more simple childhood. It was, it was one to me. And I love that. I love that. I'm glad. And I see that it is in my books. It is very much in my books. Uh, I... I did not have to decide to put it there, but I had to affirm putting it there every minute that I was doing the books. Now, uh, I don't mean to say that I find myself free from difficult, specific choices required by my sense of political responsibility in my work. Uh, by that, I mean decisions about the illustrations and the characters that... Uh, that are not givens, uh, that come from conscientious assessments about what our times ask of us and what we want to show kids about injustice, exclusion, power, um, um, desirable ends in life, what joy might mean, those kinds of things. All of that is often called political correctness. Now, uh, and, and considered by many to be maybe necessary, by some to be uh, 
very bad, but by some to be maybe necessary, but onerous and truly in conflict with creativity. I think of political responsibility as the privilege of enlightenment. You hear the voice of my parents, right? <laughs> Don't you wish you knew how they succeeded at this? But uh, I, I do think of that. It is a privilege to live in a time when we get to ask these questions, when people who have been, uh, you know, for millennia excluded are not easily, not easily, but in some kind of uh, endless struggle getting to come in. And we have choices to make about this, and I am happy to be part of that. But I also experienced it as a spur to creativity, and I want to end with that. I want to give an example of that because I, it's one that I know I made. Sometimes you don't know you make these, but I know I made this. I did a book called More, 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 Said the Baby. This book sprang, I knew that, from being in love. I experienced being in love with my, when my first grandchild was born. I just went nuts. If it had a political outlook, it was to reiterate the passionate physicality of babies in their interaction with adults and within themselves. I know that I did have the feeling that though there were many moving and dear books about babies, they did not express the sensuousness and life of the little creatures that so astonished me in my rediscovery of it as a grandparent. In this... Uh, since my creativity was moved by a somewhat an educational as well as a celebratory intent and just a desire to say, wow, you know, I just love this kid. When I actually came to paint uh, my flesh and blood main character, he was as white and blonde as they come because he was my grandchild, who, and I made him to look like my grandchild. Why not? It was he who inspired the book. Is that wrong? Did it need considerations about his color uh, and his almost minority status in our city uh, and in his borough, Brooklyn, uh, or about his gender? Uh, did another boy need to be crowed over in my book? But he was my grandchild, and I wanted to crow over him, right? Did it need these considerations for the book to be a true expression of my feelings when it already was a very true expression of my feelings, I would have to say? Well, the answer to that is yes. Yes. Because the book was not a private book, right, for my family. It was going to go into the hands of children of many colors, into the hands of girls as well as boys. And what I wanted more than anything... See, this, is, this, is, this interests me. What I wanted, as well as to express the love I felt for Hudson, was for that love to translate. Right? And I didn't want any barriers to that translation. So I took the little poem-like text I had written and divided it and the three affectionate nicknames that the one grandchild had had, which were Little Guy, Little Pumpkin, and Little Bird, and I made it into three separate love stories, enabling me to have four new characters. Then came many choices about their colors and genders, and would you believe it about their order in the book? Who was going to be first? Okay, little guy stayed first because he was, after all, my grandchild. <laughs> uh, and I asked myself many questions, and, and uh, they may see dumb, seem uh, unnecessary, but to me they were real questions. I asked myself, for instance, if it was all right for the only girl and the only Asian character in the book to be asleep throughout the story, as she is. <laughs> And I chose to give the black child in the book a light-skinned, blonde-haired grandma. I did that to add another kind of family, 
and to widen the song of love and delight in babies. This all took a lot more work and more choices, and it made me anxious. The choices and experiments had to come from a much more conscious place than the original outburst of joyous poem about my grandchild. But, and this is what I like, but it pushed my creativity and my imagination, and it made a more varied book, a more compelling design with entree to more ears and more eyes, and with more in it to shake the minds and hearts and imaginations of the users. So uh, I look at that and, and, uh, and I see where <coughs> the demand on oneself for political responsibility can, can take you. I do ask myself <laughs> whether it wouldn't have been a truer book with the children naked some of the time. <laughs> but I did stop at that one, <laughs> or did I censor myself? <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence Yap has been waiting, and he's our last speaker. Anyone reading Lawrence Yap's books would realize that this is a writer who refuses to be pigeonholed. His writing combines the historical novel, fantasy, comedy, and contemporary realism, and this could be said of just one book, The Child of the Owl. In The Rainbow People, he tells us the stories that his father heard from the men who could not bring their families from China, and he describes these stories as strategies for living. I think that same could be said about all of Lawrence Yep's books. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm going to take a little more introspective path, I think, than some of the other speakers. Uh, that's because I think of writing as a form of self-discovery, and what values are in my books are values that I've found for myself. Uh, and I think the most important value for me is one that I would have to call integrity. And by integrity, I mean, well, among other things, a kind of honesty and authenticity, but I also mean a kind of harmony or a kind of balance, um, a kind of integration of all the parts that are in me and part of my soul. Uh, that comes about partly uh, because of my background. Uh, I grew up in a black neighborhood in San Francisco, and I went to school in Chinatown. And so I didn't face white culture head on until I actually went to a Jesuit high school. And so as a result, uh, I got into writing as a way of trying to balance all these different sets of values. And uh, that raised other kinds of problems. Because my parents had grown up at a time in America when it was still dangerous to be Chinese. And so uh, the proverb that uh, they took to heart uh, was a proverb um, that said, the nail that sticks out gets hammered. And so even though they made a value of being in unobtrusive, that didn't mean that they didn't have feelings or that they didn't have dreams. They just didn't dare to show them. Let me explain a little bit about what I mean about dreams, because I used it in a story one time. Um, there once was a, um, there once was a, um, a famous gourmet chef, and people had to make appointments months in advance in order to have him cook a banquet for them. And so this rich man made his appointment. But the night before he was supposed to have his banquet, he had a dream in which the chef came to his house 
and cooked this 100-course meal, and each course was better than the last course. And uh, when he woke up, he, uh, he found uh, that he'd eaten half of his sheep. And, uh, but he realized that no mortal meal would ever match uh, what ha the meal that he'd had in his dreams. So he canceled uh, the appointment. Now, the chef didn't actually lose any money because the chef was able to jug around his schedule book. <laughs> but the chef decided that this was set a bad precedent for business. So he sued the rich man for the meal that he had cooked in the dream. <laughs> and so uh, they both went before the magistrate. And um, the magistrate heard uh, the rich man, and then he heard the chef. And then he ordered the rich man to fill a vase full of gold coins. And then he ordered the chef to hood out his palms with the palms upwards. And then he ordered the, the rich man to move the vase in such a way that the shadow of the vase crossed the chef's palms. And he said, for dreams, a person pays and is paid with shadows. Now, I learned a good deal about dreams and dreaming, both in uh, my own neighborhood in this, in this black area and in Chinatown. Um, but I'd like to speak more about Chinatown. Um, many people assume that uh, uh, all Chinese are professionals. They're doctors, lawyers, engineers. And while many of them are successful, for every Chinese that's, that uh, does get a degree and goes on to a, a, a profession, there are two or three who don't. And so there are many Chinese in Chinatown who live on the very edge of prosperity, but they cannot uh, touch it. Now, back in the 50s, for instance, uh, there were many, there still are many sweatshops, but back in the 50s, uh, a Chinese woman had the option of actually sewing at home. So she would go down to the sweatshop and pick up the pieces, bring them home, and then sew them together on her sewing machines. And in fact, uh, many of the clothes that were sewn for the Sears Roebuck and the Montgomery Ward catalogs were sewn in America, but sewn in, at, in these sweatshops. Um, at any rate, and uh, a friend of mine can remember having to babysit her brothers and sisters in this tiny little studio apartment while her mother hunched over the sewing machine all day. And she remembers specifically uh, her mother sewing together these fine, delicate, lacy blouses. And so my friend could literally hold these fine, delicate, lacy blouses in her hands, but she could not possess them. So... In many ways, what I try and see myself as doing is trying to articulate and understand some of those dreams. Now, that raised um, other problems for me because I had been raised, first of all, with that first rule, um, the nail that sticks out gets hammered, so you're not supposed to call attention to yourself. And the second rule was uh, you're not supposed to discuss certain things with outsiders. And so when it came actually time to start writing about myself as a Chinese-American, uh, Many times it was like taking a razor blade to my soul because I had to keep asking myself, was I being honest, was I being authentic, or was I taking up one of these um, self-imposed, one of these masks that have been created by this larger mainstream society for us. So I try and find our integrity by articulating and understanding those dreams and words are the shadows and yet the search for the dreams goes on. So thank you. I think 
Uh, we had asked actually everyone if they would have a question for any of the others, but I think Lawrence brought up such a powerful one that I'd like to ask all of you. Are there values that you grew up with that as you have changed and your writing have changed that you felt you had to reject in order to become the writers that you have become? Um, or is there, I guess I'll leave that at that. Virginia, is there any way in which you were brought up that in order to become the writer you are? Um, I don't think anything has changed for me. It has become more emphatic. I still write about generations, and I still write about, uh, from history and from the past to the present. And uh, I, I related very much to what Vera was saying. Um, I think we said the same things, only uh, in a different way. Uh, my my life and my beliefs and my what goes into my writing and my living is is seamless. It's all one thing, you know. So I don't think about values because I don't separate what I do from how I live. You know, it's all a part of it. So no, nothing has changed for me. Um, it's gotten better, I think. Um, sometimes the writing gets more complex. Sometimes it gets simpler. I think I've become more versatile, but uh, all the bases of the beginning, uh, where I come from, my past, the egalitarianism, it's all the same. It, it doesn't change. Is there anyone feeling that's different? That there are values from your childhood that you've, writing for children that you've had to feel that you've had to change? My parents were not unlike Vera's parents, and as a result, they dreamed of a time when there would be total intermarriage in the world, and there would be one wonderful mishmash of people. And I married an Israeli and uh, came to terms with the fact that I was actually born Jewish, even if I'd done nothing Jewish in my childhood. And that has gotten into my books. My the fact that I missed having roots as a child, the fact that I've tried to give roots to my children, and that I think it's important to be aware of your background so you can understand yourself and then understand other people as well. Yeah, uh, this is a little, a little to the side of what you're asking, but I think one of the wonderful things is that uh, actually what has happened is that uh, the... Uh, the nature of my childhood, its its values and its taste and everything about it has become much clearer to me. I would have said before I started, uh, particularly before I wrote a chair for my mother, that I differed quite a lot from my parents. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, in that series, I could see, though it, it addressed itself also to a lot about my, uh, a lot of the personal arc of my life, but I could see that the, their very, uh, the very essence of their, of the way they had brought me up was was contained in those books. And uh, as I've written more, a lot of uh, of, uh, of my childhood has become uh, more real to me, actually. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with Vera. Where I think I rediscovered um, how worthwhile my dad's values were. I thought he was kind of a boring <laughs> elementary school principal. <laughs> when I lived in Michigan, so I bugged out of there to come to uh, New York and be cool. 
But then when I was in front of 30 second graders, I suddenly realized how good he was at talking to seventh graders and, and how his values and just the way that he valued little kids as not equal adults, but at least people in their own right. They may have been a little smaller and not quite formed, but it didn't mean they were idiots because they were smaller. And he treated m me and my five brothers that way. We were kind of a little classroom in action. Um, and I think I chose to be like the goofy one who could uh, be heard at the dinner table by making louder, weirder jokes than uh, my brother who became the lawyer, who could just talk faster than anyone else. <laughs> But in a weird way, I came back to appreciate the values that um, he had always taught us, and I and just got to use them later. I'd like to, since we went one way, if anyone figured out, none of these people have written an ABC book. So, <laughs> But if you did notice, we did go alphabetically. And so I'm now going to ask Lawrence if you have a question for the general group. Well, I, I actually, this is for Virginia yeah. because um, uh, you wrote that. You, you had this wonderful Turner phrase, and in one of the, one of, and it was an essay that was published in an anthology, Literature and Experience, and you coined this phrase, uh, "the Great American Hopescape." Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could tell us more about what you, if you remember that at all. I remember using that and uh, being very proud of myself because I thought it was very original at the time. <laughs> and uh, I think I, 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 I'm really talking about my family mm. and the fact that uh, my grandfather had been a fugitive from slavery and their hope was the North and freedom and the land that they acquired and the generations of the family became their hopescape. So uh, to me, it was like uh, every group coming to America crosses the hopescape, uh, crosses this, this dream, mm -hmm. you know, and finds its place. Mm -hmm. And that's what I meant by that, really. I, sh I should say that I, was supposed to work. Yeah, I, I think I'm the one who uh, who um, uh, told Pam that I thought that was a sexist story. I think we were in the, <laughs> we were in the uh, in the train station in Baltimore, <laughs> and uh, I was I was uh, I was surprised by that story, and I and I told you that, right? Right, and I told you it was me. Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. We discussed right, it. Yeah. So what I want to ask you, and I and I have to preface this a little bit. Uh, I have had responses to my books uh, about their uh, uh, political or social desirability, certain parts. For instance, uh, people have spoken to me about why Little Pumpkin has a white grandmother. Uh, these are not people who think that it is uh, never to be that white people and black people should marry, but people who feel that uh, the uh, African-American uh, family uh, is not shown very much in books and is given, in general, a bad um, description. And they would have liked to have seen a loving, uh, a loving relationship uh, between the two, the, the little black uh, child and, and a matching grandmother, or a somewhat matching grandmother. 
I mean, that whole that's a whole other question of whether you can look at people in a picture and know, or on the street and know exactly what they are. That, of course, is also quite not the case. But now this question, right, uh, which has to do with correctness or, or political responsibility, seems to me a very respectable question. And, and uh, I thought about it a lot. I thought about it before I did it. And uh, when it was asked me, I thought about it. All I can say is, well, I think you, ha you are, in a sense, uh, thinking of something worthwhile. But I did not uh, write an encyclopedia on, uh, you know, on relationships. It's a 30, you know, 32-page book, and I made a choice. <laughs> it, it is a loss to, you, to what you want. It is not an affirmation of what you want. You are right, and we need, we need those. But it is an affirmation of people who have a mixed family. Uh, uh, and uh, again, in a more cut and dried situation, a, a situation in which I think I was more certain that I was right, uh, uh, my pictures in Cherries and Cherry Pitch were criticized, and, uh, and I was told that they were racist. Now, this was, of course, painful, and uh, I didn't know quite how to respond, but I felt I had to listen to this. And because we grow up in a racist uh, uh, you know, society where we absorb a lot of that, and actually uh, I uh, perhaps uh, I had to look at these and see if that was the case. So what I want to ask you is when these remarks were made or these responses were made against your view of the Indians or, or of the uh, woman in the, in the dinosaur bones uh, incident, or when, you know, and what I said, how much did you think about them? Did you think about them a, a, a lot? Did you question what you had thought or? Afterwards, after yeah, it was written? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I wrote it, I didn't think about those things at all. I think very much, I'm really in the character's mind and I just really concern myself with the voice and I kind of, uh, just drown myself in that period so that w I feel that whatever the character says in the narrative is true. I just try to be true to that mm -hmm, character. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, when I looked at it, I, I still have trouble seeing, because I know it's in that voice. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, now it has me worried sometimes. I feel like it's, it's like kind of stirred me up and I have to be careful about everything. Like uh, I'm doing a book about Levittown right now and I love, <laughs> Levittown. <laughs> you Did know, you go up there? I, no, yeah. I didn't. But I love the concept. Levittown, if you don't know, was a, a, a an instant town that was built after World War II for GIs, and it was very cheap housing, no basements, you know, living room, kitchen, dining room, two bedrooms, and I just loved the idea of it. And I was so excited about it. And I started it, and I found out that the first contracts for Levittown houses said you could never sell the house to a non-Caucasian. So I thought, well, what, do I not write this now? Is this is it bad? Is it a bad place? Were these bad people? And it's it's been a struggle that I've been. Well, I just don't know what to make of it. And I thought, is 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 a white community a bad community? Is is only a mixed community good, or can you have two communities? Can you have? It, it's brought up all these questions for me, and it's it's very difficult. And I I feel uh, a certain responsibility. But I feel that I'm writing about a factual time period and, and a thing that happened, and should it not be given attention because there was that aspect to it. Uh, people did, at a certain period, fight that. They did take it to court and have it overruled. It's no longer like that. 
I did go to a parade in Levittown and there weren't many black faces. You know, that worried me. Uh, so I feel like for the later chapters, what I did do is I spoke to uh, librarians in the, the middle schools in Levittown and I said, do you have some black kids I can talk to? You know, and want to know what the, what's the black experience in Levittown? I don't even know if I should write about that. <laughs> so it's just, uh, it's a yeah, real it's struggle. Difficult. It's very yeah. difficult. Because I feel I'll be criticized for it, or I'll be judged. No, but I mean, if you take into consideration all the things that you just said, I mean, if your story also has the people who maybe wanted to get into Levittown and couldn't because there were many, and you could research that, I don't see what your problem is. You're just telling a rounded story. <laughs> if you mean you don't want to write that story, then that's yeah. something else. Yeah, I didn't want to write about the people who couldn't get into Levittown. I wanted to write about what life was like in Levittown in each yeah. decade right. and at some point it would take in black families I would hope right. I'm not done with the research and I'm not yeah. sure and seeing as how I've been criticized already for the way I've portrayed black people I feel sensitive well, about it. Well sometimes you have to look at criticism and who's criticizing you and what they mean because people throw words around like racist yeah. quite a lot yeah. particularly when white writers are writing about blacks or other minority groups and stuff. That was the question I had. I had a question that I wanted to ask the panel and some of you have answered it partially. And the question was, do you who are white spend a significant portion of your creative writing of characters and the plotting therefrom thinking about the character's skin color, about their race? If not, why not? You see, because that's what I have to think about. I've been writing about the children that I know and that I feel uh, I can identify with the best, but one minor character in one of my books was a Hispanic boy, and the more I write about characters, and I've written a lot of series, so the more I write books about the same characters over and over, I get to know even the minor characters better and better, and so Julio became more and more real to me, and I really felt I knew him and wanted to write a book from his point of view, and then began to worry because I know that uh, white writers are criticized when they write books about people of races that they're not. Uh, some people feel that if a white writer writes about a Hispanic or a black character, they're taking the place of a black or Hispanic writer who should be writing that book, uh, who will know the characters better uh, and have better insights into them, uh, and so we shouldn't do it. I mean, we're really told not to do it. And I was... Um, reviewers say it. Uh, librarians say it. Uh, I mean, I've heard this. I know this is true. Uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, I wanted very much to write about this boy. And so I did. And then uh, wanted to show that this Hispanic boy uh, came from a family where he lived with his mother, his two older brothers, and his grandmother, but not with a father. And that grew out of the fact that my daughter is a social worker and worked with many Hispanic families where there wasn't a father, but I wanted to show that this boy came from a very strong family, that there can be a very strong family whether there's a father or not. I wasn't trying to be stereotypical, but I was trying to have a good family that people could identify with, who could care about, could see that this boy had support. And uh, so I wrote the story, submitted it, 
and my editor accepted it but did have one problem, the fact that there was no father. And we did argue it back and forth and compromised in the end by implying that the father was dead. I just say that the boy doesn't have a father. We don't say that the father left the family or anything like that. I didn't want the father to be there because I wanted to show a strong mother, a loving grandmother, and two older brothers who were the male figures for this boy. And there is a Hispanic teacher who's a male figure for the boy in the story too. Uh, but I was nervous and I waited to see what reviewers would say because I know that this is open to criticism sometimes. And the nicest thing that happened actually was that a black librarian came up to me and said, now that you've written about a Hispanic boy, I hope you're going to write a book about a black child. Would you have been upset if I'd done that? No, why? Well, good. I'm glad you wouldn't. No, no, but I think know, some people would feel you know they would where be. The, the, the problem arises, and it really, it's, it's so much better now because there was a time when we wouldn't even be having this discussion because there weren't any minorities in books for kids. And, and now we can have this discussion because everybody's doing it, you know, with multiculturalism and all that stuff, and um, which has always been here, but we've just suddenly seen it, you know, as if it had all been invisible. But um, the nice thing would be if there were enough books that had non-white characters, there wouldn't be this problem. But your book will stand out and her book will stand out because there are so few books with minority characters anyway. So when a white writer does it, it stands out like it's the only book because there aren't enough. You know, when there are enough, that won't be, that won't happen. You know, that's why we, we cry for more books having to do with more different kinds of people. But I think this gets, and I'd, I'd actually like John to address this because in a certain sense, by breaking myths, <coughs> you're, trying to create them for the contemporary, for the next generation. And you do have to think about, I would think, racism and sexism as you, if you're going to fracture fairy tales, part of the joy of fracturing them indeed should be to be able to break some of the myths that you felt were ones that needed to be broken. So yeah, I want to know how you do address that. And Yeah, for the fairy tale stuff, I mean, I, I definitely see it as the the prime occasion to break all those myths and just shatter everything um, in sight, even to the conventions of bookmaking, um, just to make people aware of the fact that they are there and that they are conventions and myths. In the same way that kids usually don't see an end paper because the end papers are always at the end of the book. If you put it in the middle of the book, it suddenly becomes this thing and they go, what is this doing here? Um, and in the same way with the Time Warp Trio characters, I hope to just sort of trash everybody on an equal basis there. <laughs> so, um, but you do have a black character. Yeah, my venture into the uh, multicultural foray was the good, the bad, and the goofy, where the cowboys are bad, the Indians are bad, the black cowboys are bad. Just sort of everyone's bad uh, across the board. <laughs> But I think in that way, kids kids look around, and that's kind of a nice opportunity to slip in effect, um, like something that there was a black cavalry that Custer refused to be the head of. And you just put that, you plant that in there. Um, and I had heard Daniel Pinkwater say once that he plants little things like the main character of his book to be named Mozart, 
and some third grader will say Mozart, what a weird name. And who knows, years later that thing will just explode and they'll find another Mozart and go, look, they named him after Daniel Pinkwater's character. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully if, if you slide little things in there within what looks like chaos and just bizarreness, I think that's a much better way for kids to learn things. If you lecture them and make sure that every book is a racially, sexually balanced book, it doesn't happen. Uh, kids see those books and drop them. Where I'm hoping to be more like the uh, trickster monkey king of uh, <laughs> children's books. Because that's the stuff I liked from Lawrence's uh, Rainbow People. In fact, Lawrence, I wondered how you went about picking which of the Monkey King stories you get to tell, or did you feel odd about maybe not picking some of the more rude ones? Because I always, I love those. I think even on the book it politely intimates that um, there are some very earthy monkey stories. <laughs> I can't think of uh, the way that um, the Lord Buddha captures the Monkey King if he dares the monkey to jump over his hand. And the Monkey King figures that he can jump over. And uh, he jumps all the way to the edge of the world. And at the edge of the world, he sees these brown pillars. And so um, since his bladder happens to be full, he decides to relieve himself. And he hears this giant shout. And he's, he's piddled on the, the Buddha's hand. And I can't think of anything. I can't think of a, uh, of a, a story like that getting into the Bible. Um, <laughs> I had liked a lot of the uh, Native American coyote stories. They're just some hilarious ones, mm -hmm. but tough to tell to seventh graders yes, even. Would you feel that you couldn't tell them because you aren't Native American? So no. Does anyone feel that the legends of one group who belong are best written by that group? Not when you have coyote meets colored man, and there are yeah. stories like that, you know, so I feel part of them belong to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's the monkey king meets the Polish guy. <laughs> not told very often, I know, but <laughs> so I feel a part of that. Maybe. I want to share an experience uh, of... Uh, about gender in in uh, one of my books, and and this is a little connected with what you say. You have these characters, and they talk. They are themselves, and they want to talk a certain way. They have to be themselves. Uh, sometimes you can say to yourself, uh, "I don't want this character to be a boy because I want a girl to be able to do these things in my book and change it, and it'll be just fine." I wrote a book called String Bean's Trip to the Shining Sea. And Stringbean is a boy. He has the name I had when I was a child and was skinny. It's a long time ago. Um, and uh, he, he has a lot of something of me. So why couldn't he be a girl? He would not be a girl. I would have had to lie. See, I think that this is a very delicate thing in, the in your sense of political responsibility. There is a lot you can do, and I think I like, I mean, I, I don't want to say I think one should, though, of course, I was raised to say I think one should, I am an ideologue, but uh, 
I also feel that I want to have a lot of movement about what I can change and do to balance out a situation that we came upon the scene, you know, uh, when uh, and inherit so much injustice. And that we want, you know, we've got these little worlds, 32 blank pages, right? I mean, it's hard to change the real world. It's a lot easier to change 32 pages. But, but you can't lie. You know, it's like you're saying. They, they, she, the, your character was not going to call him a Native American, right? And, and my character, to be true to the impetus that put that character in the world. After all, that character was my child. You know, I could not deny it's, it's, uh, the gender it was meant to have in that story and it remained a boy. I could do things about String Bean as a boy. I could make him a kind of boy and make him say kinds of things and feel things and have experiences that represented the way I would like my boy to be, you know. Uh, but I, I couldn't change his gender. Yeah. I would like actually to ask Lawrence and Virginia, uh, would you ever feel comfortable writing a book with only white characters in it? <laughs> I just gave a speech about that, actually. I was saying, I, I, if there's any kind of censorship, it's one that I feel that my public would rise up against me or something if I did. Although it's very tempting. You know, although I have books in where there's, there's interracial dating and a little love, and I've done white characters, but no, that's not my, that's, that's not my, um, my experience. I've never lived in a completely white world, you know, so, you know, my characters that I dream about aren't white. You know what I mean? My conscious, my unconscious is, is not of the majority. So I don't think I could do that with any kind of truth. Well, I mean, in fact, I have done a book about white, all white characters in the suburbs. And I was thinking about today, because I was watching some Asian American actors, um, and they have to play several roles. And one of the roles, they have to play some Americans. And in fact, it's easier for these Asian American actors to pass as whites than the reverse, just because in order to function in the mainstream, you have to learn how the mainstream functions. Um, I think a more related question might be um, that the fact is I have written uh, a couple of books from the viewpoint of, uh, of, of girls. And um, I was very careful what I chose to talk about, though. I mean, I could talk about things that I understood trying to grow up at that time, uh, uh, trying to go through adolescence and wondering about clothes and then projecting myself into that moment. And um, I figured it did okay um, because it does get used in some women's studies courses in some cases. Then it must be good. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it's acceptable. They, they don't, uh, yeah. Before I throw it out to the audience, which I'd like to do because it's a long time to be sitting, um, is there anyone who does have, a, on the panel, has a question that hasn't had a chance to ask it? I got my pronouns totally mixed up in that one. But <laughs> in that case, I would like to throw uh, the questions up in, to the audience. Yes, please. You, and you'll have to speak up. And yes. Well, I was just thinking of the power all of you have to shape, I guess, our next generation because I was one of the kids that went and went to childhood. And I've experienced literature as something that's an opportunity to, to create holy vistas or to, to change realities that are good or that are bad. And 
I was wondering, it's kind of a two-tiered question, um, I guess kind of created by what Ms. Conrad and Ms. Hurwitz said, and number one, what is one of your major reasons for wanting to write for children? And number two, if feedback that you got not from the viewers, but from children or from teachers or parents who directly under, got some type of feedback from children told you that what you were doing was adversely affecting a child's image or a child's progress, would that be powerful enough for you to overcome uh, any uh, desire not to compromise your writing? What comes to mind when you say that, my first book went out of print. It was uh, E.P. Dutton book, I Don't Live Here. And um, I had gotten a letter from a librarian about that book a long time ago. And at the time, I just kind of uh, thought, well, what is she talking about? But there's a scene in the book where the two children go through um, raspberry <laughs> bushes and their legs get cut up and they become uh, blood neighbors where they put their legs together and mix their blood. And this woman wrote and she said, you really can't do that with children with this AIDS that's here now. And this was maybe eight, seven or eight years ago when it wasn't all over. But today, now that it's out of print, I would never allow it to go back in print again because I think that, would, that could hurt a child. It just made me very uncomfortable. Uh, and as far as writing for children, I write for adults as well, and I, the things I do for children, it feels like it's just the voice that comes into my head. I'm a really great believer in voice, and I just, some things, you know, if something starts to stir up, I could actually hear a voice, and a story starts to come, and it's told from that person's point of view. And whoever, however old that person is, that's how old the book is going to be. If that person's 35 living in suburbia, that's going to be, that's who's going to want to read it. If she's nine years old, that's who will read it. And I want to say, I feel I'm the only one here that's not ethnic. <laughs> I and I feel like this, I feel like vanilla pudding, you know, it's just so... You're, you're our token ethnic. <laughs> I'll be the token ethnic. In New York, that's ethnic. <laughs> Has anyone ever written about a white Christian? <laughs> Was that directed to me? That right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, but it's okay, well, I'll start with why I write for children, which is uh, <coughs> partly that I decided I wanted to be a writer when I was a child, and the kind of books I was reading then were children's books, so I just assumed that that was the kind of thing I was going to write. <laughs> but in addition, uh, as a writer, uh, I, I loved children very much, and I've worked with children for, for many years as a children's librarian, and I... I feel very close to them, and my husband says I'm really only eight years old inside. Uh, but besides that is the knowledge that children read a book more than once. And when I write a book, and I put a lot of effort and time and thought into it, it's very satisfying to know that that book is going to be read more than one time by many children. Sometimes I get letters from children telling me they've read a book of mine 10 or 12 times. Uh, and it means that each time they read it, they're getting something a little bit different out of it and a little bit more from it. And I'm a great reader myself, and I love to read, but the minute I finish a book, I run and get another book, and I rarely go back and reread because I know there's so much out there I'll never have time for. And children haven't discovered that yet. So if they like something, they'll read it again. So that's very satisfying for me as a writer to know that. Uh, there was another part to your question. 
Oh. And for Latino groups, I responded and said, this is so stereotypical. Why did you choose to write a stereotype instead of opening your business? Would you, in your next book, want to do that, or would you feel comfortable being forced Okay, if, if that had happened, I, I'm sure I would have been very self-conscious and, and backed away and for a long time not wanted to write or try to write about anyone that wasn't closer to myself. Although, as I say, I've written about boys. I've written about uh, Aldo Saucy, who obviously is not Jewish. Uh, and as it happened, I got a lot of very positive feedback about Julio Sanchez, and I'm working right now on another book about him because I feel I know him even better than I did in the last book I wrote about him. Uh, but I was thinking of a question before to ask, and uh, everyone seemed to know their values for so long and so strongly that I didn't bother to ask it. But what it was was what Pam just answered, and that is most of us have been writing for a decade at least, and some even longer. And so... Not the National But I, I just wondered, you know, if um, you had the chance to rewrite something, would you rewrite it and make changes because having lived longer and having your values uh, solidified or changed or whatever, that you uh, would want something to be different? And, and Pam just answered that, and I will answer it for myself and say that when I started writing and thinking that my audience was 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, I didn't realize how many of my books would be read aloud to 5- and 6-year-olds. And I've had a lot of flack because in an early book of mine about a five-year-old girl that is read very frequently aloud to kindergarten and first grade classes, she loses her first tooth. And she's very excited about this and puts it under her pillow, as children always do, and then stays up to look for the tooth fairy and is actually successful because children often do this but usually fall asleep. She is successful and catches her mother in the act and discovers that the tooth fairy is really her parents. And teachers have really berated me for giving this away to such young children. <laughs> and I feel very badly about it because I don't want to be the bearer of bad tidings. <laughs> uh, you know, they're going to find that out when they're a little bit older and I don't have to be the one to tell them. But I never never would have realized that this story would be read aloud to children who didn't already know that. Maybe there should be a warning up I think so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I now am aware of, that when I'm writing a book and imagining, you know, this is a book I'm writing for an eight-year-old, that there's, there might be some uh, five-year-old who's going to have access to this book. Are there any other questions? Yes, please. Um, I wanted to say that um, I really like the panel. And um, Carol, and I wanted just to tell you that um, my godson has almost every book that you've ever written. And uh, I personally bought about 15 copies of the people who fly. I was very pleased with that because I've, I'm from Africa, and I love what you do in that. I love that researching of stories. It's very African. Talk about 
quote Riggs, he asked, it was almost Ms. Hamilton's responsibility. In fact, eyes went to her. And I thought you, Ms. Conrad, when you mentioned the fact that at a point this town, I have not heard of it, so it's great for me, had no black people. It's a marvelous time to tell that story and to tell it just like that. You can't tell a story in 1992 that comes out of 19, I'm assuming, 40 something. Um, and you also looked to her. And she's creating her stories from wherever it comes, but you are creating your stories from where they come. And you are two separate people with two separate histories. Granted, you're all human beings. So I'm saying, at what point does human, humanness come into it? At what point do you have to be white, black, green, purple, male, female? That disturbs me that all of you did it and that you kept doing it. It really, I don't I'm not necessarily asking you for an answer. I'm just mm -hmm. telling you that as a member of the audience, it kind of disturbed me um, in see, a very unhealthy way. I understand racism and all that, but it disturbed me. Right, it is disturbing, but it's because we are Americans, maybe we understand it more. Um, I think I, it's because in this country, everything is so racially specific. You know, none of us, white or black or any, anything else, can ever get, seem to get away from that. You know, it is such, the fact that um, the white writers on this panel have to think about it constantly, in a way, pleases me, because I have to think about it. You know, and I've always had to think about it. And now they're having to think about what I've always had to think about and try to get around, you know, in every way that I can to show my humanness and my individuality. And now they have to do it too. That's why I asked the question that nobody answered. I mean, because uh, I asked why do you have to think about it? You know, do you have to think about skin color? And now you do. Yes, you and, know? I think, and I think it applies not just to racism, but to feminism, and in a sense, that's, I guess, what I, and I should have been more specific in asking. Do you think of skin color? And that is well I think I think that really was the theme of the panel because I think in a sense I think that the writers, yes, we do bring the values of today, even though we write about children and the world is very different from when most of us grew up. And so yes, we do, those of us who did not see race, or did not see it as a subject that we would ever write about, um, it has become, I think, part of our world. And I think that was your question. And I think that was what Pam answered. I think that in a sense, 
was very much a deep part of what people did answer or tried to answer. And I think that's in a sense. Had to update by eliminating the racism. Uh, the sexism wasn't really there. Well, it wasn't the way. My mother was safely dead, so, you know. <laughs> but her boyfriend, you know, her boyfriend is supposed to be her sidekick. He is the one who has to rescue her, although she never tells him where she's going to be. He has to find it out. <laughs> but that's, but the racism that they fixed was very interesting. They, you know, if you read the book and then you read the update, you find that the racism they fixed was the racism they were told to fix. But so that the, there is one guy, one young boy, whose racism, who, the racism against whom was not fixed. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm asking to, to, to make it a question he's, because I mean, that's he's all right. Indian, no. he's India, India. And so, so they take him in because he's threatened, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing, the activity for this young boy is he becomes the gardener until they find out he is really the son of a prince. And then he no longer has to do the gardening work. So when you try to do that artificially, <coughs> is what I'm saying, when you do it not from your heart and not from what comes, but when you're doing it because you have to do it to be PC, you mess up. You miss. There's a racism there. This kid is from India. Nobody cares about that, so he can go and be a gardener. But the kid who's black can't. You know, that's not. Well, does that's anyone, not really fixing does anyone want on the panel want to address uh, the issue of PC short in a short answer? <laughs> uh, I think Joanna has a marvelous story about it in the uh, the uh, yeah, which you should tell. But but I I want to say again. I really do want to say this. You said a little bit that it is. That PC is not, you can look at it as not a burden. It is not a burden to try to make the works, and they are in fact gifts. You are sending out these gifts partly to people. When you send gifts, you try to think of the person who is receiving the gift. And uh, it, in that way, it, again, it is, a, it, is a, it is a privilege and uh, to do it. You have to do it from your heart, but you also have to do it from your head, from your contemporary reading, from your talking to people. You have to expose yourself to what people think and respond. But in fact, uh, someone asked, could you, uh, if, if a Latino group uh, or a, uh, didn't felt that something you had written was not good, you would have to listen to that, but you couldn't automatically say that you would respond to it by changing it because there is a vast variety of Hispanic and Latino people in the country. There are many, many, many different communities of uh, African Americans, Caribbeans, uh, urban and rural, and I mean, on and on and on. You, and in fact, uh, you, you also, especially with children, you have to realize that you're dealing with a person who has, who has to deal themselves with uh, the effects of racism in our country. For instance, the images, I know I'm an answering this at great length, but no, I'll, I'll exactly. to <laughs> uh, I, I have put uh, paintings in, in my book, Cherries and Cherry Pits, and I watch kids look at them, and I know they're things they don't like, even though I would say that they are respectful images. 
but because of an extraordinary sensitivity about looks and skin, which has been forced on people, they see them in an exaggerated way. I have to take that into account. I have to think about how they are printed so that they don't come out in a way that will make the people whom I am giving them to feel bad. writing belonged to the realm of responsibility, and if Flaubert had probed this kind of questioning, he never would have written Madame de Bovary. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, but, right, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm getting very squirmy and very, very uncomfortable. Um, I think censorship has always been our enemy, and I throw to the panel, are we becoming the enemy? Um, um, and when you say that political correctness is a privilege, um, I, I can't understand that. To me, it is, it is control, um, and don't any of you feel that political correctness is, is controlling you? It makes me really screw. I do, I do feel it interferes with me creatively. I, I think I said that in the thing I wrote. I do have a sense that... I really am free if I don't think of any of that stuff. And if I start to worry about it, I think I would not write. I think it, I can see where later at a certain point, if someone brings something up before it's published, I would think about it. But when I look back at my Daniel, I would not change what she said. I would not change the Indians and Prairie songs. I would not change Pedro. Because uh, my, my, I'm not political. I didn't grow up in a Marxist household. I'm almost envious. It sounds really neat. I, I, I feel, but I feel very. <laughs> I feel very unsophisticated. I feel very uh, raw. I just feel like I, writing is not something that's real intentional for me, and uh, it is very unsophisticated the way I write. So, I, I, it is uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And. I was thinking before, I had written a story for Scholastic when I was first writing. I wrote a story for one of their textbooks. And when it was um, published, Scholastic has to make so many black people, so many oriental people. And they published my story about these two little girls as though they were two little black girls. And I thought it was wonderful. And it, it switched. It, it still worked. And then I got letters from kids who thought I was an old black woman. <laughs> so, And their letters were wonderful. So, I, you know, we were talking about whether we could write about it. What does it matter if we there's just, you know, I'm talking, when I write, I'm talking about an experience of a certain person in a certain place. I really, if I think of stone words or something, I really can't promise you that that person's white. I really didn't think about it. I didn't think, I don't think white. I think my experience, I think pioneers in the prairie. I don't know. I'd like to share the story that Vera was referring to. And it's um, in one of the chapters of the book I wrote about uh, David Bernstein, who calls himself Alibaba. He notices in the phone book that there are 17 David Bernsteins in Manhattan. And when he's having his ninth birthday party, he tells his parents that he wants to invite those 17 David Bernsteins. And his parents at first are adamant, no, this won't work but eventually give in because they're sure nobody's going to accept the invitation. However, seven do, and they come, and lo and behold, they all have the same name, but they look 
different. They're different ages. They come born in different places. They have different jobs. And they sit around the table, and they have a birthday dinner. And uh, one man says, David, would you pass the salt? And somebody else says, David, can I have another slice of bread? And uh, David Bernstein, who's in his late 70s, says, you know, I always have a lot of trouble at parties. I can't remember people's names. <laughs> this is a wonderful party, he says. Well, after the book was published, uh, a textbook publisher bought that chapter to put in a textbook. And I got a phone call from the illustrator of my book, who was uh, calling me because she was now illustrating the textbook pictures. First of all, I was amazed because I had never spoken or met this woman in my life, and suddenly she called me on the phone. Uh, and when she told me she was going to be illustrating it, I said, that's wonderful because very often textbooks don't have high-quality art, and if they're asking you to do it, that means they want to have really fine pictures. And she said, but Johanna, you don't understand. They asked me to make one of the David Bernsteins black and two of them Asian. <laughs> Uh, that's what we mean about uh, you have to use your head when you're doing this political correctness because, uh, you know, yes, textbooks should have a balance of people, but it has to have some logic. Does anyone want to address this before I attack it? Uh, well, I, I would just like to say that I think it, it does not always have to be a straitjacket. Part of it is having the blinders taken off, and it's a quite, I think, I would agree with, with Vera, there are times when it's a joy to open up to ways of thinking about things that you hadn't as a child or even as writing from that. So I think I wouldn't want it to, to, to feel that it is always a binding part, and I think that's, in a sense really what we've been trying uh, to discuss. This is not one way or the other, and it certainly can be binding um, and, and also cannot be, and it's something I think we all do struggle with as we write um, in the future. Uh, and I think we're almost really out of time. Let me have this, just one person. Uh, I'm not speaking from the point of view of a writer. I teach in Brooklyn, and I've been struggling with this question. I'm hoping I can finish. I just take writers for the love of their writing. I don't pick them because they're a certain color or they're a certain race. And I don't know whether to say to the children, this person is a black writer, this person is a uh, uh, Hispanic. I, I just don't know. Should I bring it up, or do I want them to just see everyone as equal, or should I? because they don't really see the pictures no. many times. I really don't know which to do. Do I want them just not to think color? Uh, I am very confused. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've seen that issue in, in a slightly different area at uh, Berkeley, where they're talking about changing the core requirements so that you're not studying uh, European white males. And instead, what they want to do is just open up to literature by everybody, and you don't worry about what race they are or what gender they are you pick core pieces that influence civilization. And I think that's the right attitude to take to it. I just worry because, on the other hand, you do want people to be aware of the contributions of various people. So there's, there's the, the problem. Well, don't tell them I'm white, OK? <laughs> <laughs>
ghosts, the ghosts don't know. I, I would like to thank uh, our panelists. Uh, I think people realize this really are an extraordinary group of people in their thoughtfulness about children's books and in their writing from their heart and for the future. And I uh, think our, our only hope is that we can come back and in a couple decade, in a decade, perhaps see what the values of the younger writers behind us are writing and get to see you here too. So thank you all very much. Thank you.